Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala and Emma Ajaman, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer Investors Chronicle, and Patrick Conley, Chartered Financial Planner at Chase Devere. The upturn and global growth that began in 2016 benefited most stock markets, in particular those in Asia-Pacific. But so far this year, the region has not done so well. Taha, you've been looking at this. Why have Asian equities not performed so well? Hi, Leonora. There's a couple of things going on here. So the most recent thing is the trade tensions uh, with the policies coming out from the White House, placing tariffs on exports from China and you know the European Union. This has um, this has kind of sent um, investors into a bit of a panic, and they seem to be affecting the Asia Pacific stocks the most because China seems to have the most tariffs placed against it. But there is another thing as well, and this is the um, the kind of monetary policy in the U.S. So it all seems to be coming from the U.S., which is affecting the Asia Pacific. The monetary policy in the U.S. is we're seeing rate rises, and what that is doing is strengthening the dollar. And there's a perception here that a dollar strength is bad for emerging markets, but also um, Asia-Pacific markets because they have a legacy of having debt in U.S. dollars, which means that as the dollar strengthens, this debt becomes more difficult to pay. But that, yeah, so that's what seems to be driving investor sentiment at the moment. You did say perception rather than reality. So is the weaker performance justified? So um, this, this is an interesting thing. So perhaps not. So when you look at trade, for example, it's hard to see how anybody wins from these trade tensions. So the fact that Asia's and Asian Pacific stocks are getting punished more than everyone else kind of seems a little bit unfair. And the debt, the debt thing is quite interesting. So this, there is, it's a legacy issue where if you look at the stats now, so some numbers from Schroeder's here, um, Asia Pacific economies only have 13% of their debt in, denominated in US dollars. They actually have 71% in their local currency. Over, you know, since the Asian financial crisis in the 90s, they have really moved away from having dollar denominated debt and having, you know, their own currencies are now more stable, they're more internationally recognized and they are like this is it seems to be people assuming that this debt might be an issue in Asian Pacific economies, but 13 percent actually isn't that high. And it's compared that to 30 percent for Latin American Latin American economies, for example. OK, um, I suppose on that note, then, if uh, Asia's not as badly as affected as these people are suggesting and uh, the share price have come down a bit, is it a good time to invest in Asia? Yeah, your last point is, is quite valid. So given markets are flat um, year to date, this probably could be a good time. You have to account for the fact that, as you said earlier on, the markets have done very well in the last couple of years until until the recent volatility this year. But apart from that, it still could be a good time because that performance was driven by the large tech Chinese stocks. And you know, there's still an assumption that the the global growth, the broader growth could spread to other sectors. There's still space for that to happen. Uh, valuations are... They're not cheap necessarily, but they're definitely cheaper than other places, especially, you know, looking at developed economies in the UK and the US. Um, and also what it does do is uh, provide an opportunity to diversify your emerging market exposure. So Latin America is probably going to be harder by dollar strength than the Asian economy. So you could you could see an opportunity to kind of shift your emerging market exposure from Latin America to the Asian Asian emerging markets as well. If you have much in Latin America, a- that absolutely, is. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Patrick, do you think it's a good time for investors to allocate to Asian equities? Yeah, I think I agree broadly with everything that Taha said over there. I mean, if you're looking on a pure valuation basis, um, Asian equities are looking pretty cheap compared to um, to, West, to the Western world. Um, 
in, in terms of absolute prices, they're not roaring cheap, not not by any means. And so you need to go in with a sense of caution. Yes, you need to take a long term approach because um, equity markets generally have gone up a long way over the past nine years or so. So you you can't just go in and think this is a really great time to invest. So on a comparative basis, the answer is yes. On a relative basis, the answer is yes. With with a sense of caution, and if you're concerned, then then perhaps the way to do it is is to drip money in there rather than put it all in at once. Okay. Now I think we've established that perhaps Asian equities are relatively cheap uh, compared, perhaps, to other markets. But you don't just invest in something because it's perhaps looking a bit cheap. So, are there any good positive reasons to invest in Asian equities? other than the fact they might be a bit cheaper than other parts of the world. Yeah, there, there are a number of, of strong points. I mean, the growth potential in Asia is is well known and has been there for some time. Um, the, the, there have been good developments on, on country levels as well. Um, in terms of um, demographics are, posi- are very positive. We're still seeing, as we are with China in particular, but across Asia, the emergence of expanding middle classes, which have more money to spend. So in terms of the strength of their domestic markets, that's should be positive as well. Um, in terms of, of companies, we're, we're seeing more and more focus on shareholders as well. We're seeing more of a shareholder-based culture coming into play. We're seeing more companies either paying or looking at paying dividends as well. So the, generally, the, there are lots and lots of positive, positive signs there. Okay, um, positive signs indeed. But um, what about the negatives? Um, and how do the risks of Asian equities compare to other major markets? Yeah, I, I think the two big risks, and again, Ta has alluded to both of these, um, are China and the US. Um, China is a huge driver in terms of Asian markets. Um, if China has problems, then Asia in general will have problems. Um, the US, um, again, as, as Ta has said, um, some of that, is, a lot of that is, is legacy in, in the sense of the US dollar being linked to um, Asian debt and Asian currencies as well, for that matter. Um, and even though it's not to the extent that perhaps it was in the past that, that it was in the past. There is still the perception in place that that's the case. So when you see interest rates in the US going up, that does have a negative effect on stock markets. And that probably will be the case for the short to medium term. In the longer term pers- perspective, Asia markets could decouple themselves from, from the US, but that's not likely to happen anytime soon. Anytime soon. Um, and an overhang um, that, that we're seeing, of course, is the tensions between China and the US and, and um, possible trade wars and whether that gets exaggerated further. And if that were the case again, that, that, would, that would be negative for Asia. Okay. I mean, in view of all this, um, what sort of investor could consider adding or increasing um, an allocation to Asian equities? Yeah, I'm t- typically most of our clients will have some exposure to, to Asian equities, um, not a huge amount. And, and for most of them, it, it's probably just a handful of percent. Um, at the top end, we, it's very rare we would go above a 10% allocation to Asia. So it, it is it is relevant for most investors to, to at least some degree. Um, as I say, for higher risk investors, more aggressive investors, they would have a bigger exposure. But for, for everybody within reason, that, that there should be some scope there. So what funds would you suggest for accessing Asian equities? Yeah, I mean, I mean to get core exposure, we would use passive funds as part of a portfolio. Um, 
we we would tend to stick with the main passive providers and by that i mean the hsbcs the lngs the black rocks um the, those type of companies um in terms of active funds there, there are some very very good actively managed funds there a couple that we like um the um schroeder asian alpha plus is, is a very good fund what what typically what we're looking for in in asia are either companies that have um significant resources in the asian markets and or good quality stock picking fund managers who, who have a proven track record. Uh, with regard to the Schroeder Fund, um, the manager is actually based in London, albeit that Schroeder themselves obviously are... Is that are, Matthew Dobbs? It is Matthew yeah. Dobbs, yeah. Veteran Asian investor. It certainly so, is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Schroeder's themselves obviously are, are a very large global institution with, with lots and lots of resources to, to back and support him as well. But uh, uh, that that aside, with with Matthew Dobbs, you've got somebody who is given a lot of flexibility and and has a strong proven track record. Um, in terms of another fund that we like, um, the Asian Perpetual Asian, sorry, Vesco Perpetual Asian is 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 another that we like. This is a value orientated fund, prepared to take a contrarian contrarian view. There's a strong, stable team in there that's been in place for some time. And even though the lead fund manager has, has changed in recent times, the team itself is, is, is still very strong and secure and is probably as close as you can get to a safe pair of hands in the region. Taha, what funds would you suggest for accessing Asian equities? So one I really like is, is a Veritas Asian fund. It's run by Ezra Sun. Um, so to Patrick's point, um, this, they're, they're a specialist kind of Asian and emerging market fund house and they only have a handful of funds, but they, you know, they, they stick it to what they're good at. So Ezra Sun's been running this fund since 2004 and since then he's, you know, he's almost doubled the sector average in the index. Not quite, but almost, and that's impressive in his own right. Over one, three and five years, he's bad been first or second in the sector. So if you look at his three-year numbers, he's returned 77%, and the sector average and the MSCI All Countries Asia-Pacific Extra Pan Index has risen 46% and returned 46%. So again, you can see huge outperformance there. Okay, so what's driving the outperformance? So in, the, in recent years, it's been his tech exposure. As I mentioned earlier, you know, tech has kind of driven the Asian economies, and he has about 20% of the fund in tech stocks, and you've got your big Chinese names in there like Tencent, Alibaba, etc. But, you know, there, there are other things that have driven. He, he does have a diversified portfolio. Do you think it can continue to perform? Because you're saying tech's having a moment, but presumably going to hold this fund for more than a moment. Absolutely. So, but this is why I do like the fund as well. So it's only, it is only 20%, which is its biggest sector allocation, but there is 80%, which is split across a range of sectors and countries. You know, he has 20% in Australia. He's got some South Korean exposure, Indian exposure. I also like it because it's a really good split of emerging and developed market um, Asian economies. So there's, you know, there's some kind of added security in there and emerging market growth as well. But the thing I like about it the most, actually, is um, he's, he's also quite defensive in the sense that um, what he's really good at is making sure that the fund um, outperforms in downturns. So, you know, Asian equity markets are very, very volatile and you have to deal with that. But he's very good at managing that. So some interesting stats here is that um, when markets are rising, he manages to capture 138% of the market rise. But when markets are falling, he only captures 57% of the fall. So it's, it's very good kind of alpha and kind of managing the beta on the downside as well. Okay, thank you, Patrick and Taha some really helpful suggestions. Dunedin Smaller Companies Investment Trust is planning to merge with another investment trust run by the company which manages it. This is Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust. Emma, why is Dunedin Smaller Companies looking to merge with Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust? The move has come about as a result of a strategic review by Dunedin's board but actually it should be seen in the sort of wider context of what's happened at the company that runs this trust. 
And so that is Standard Life Aberdeen. And actually, it's been a merger between Standard Life, which runs Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust, and Aberdeen, which used to run Dunedin, which runs Dunedin Smaller Companies. That merger took place last year. And so what the board has done has recognised that there is actually quite an overlap between um, what these two funds are trying to do. But the Dunedin Smaller Companies Trust is much smaller than the Standard Life UK Smallest Companies Trust. Um, Dunedin only had about £137 million before the announcement was made. And also the trust was suffering from a lack of secondary market liquidity. And this has meant that it's been harder for the trust to attract new investors, the board says. What about performance? How's Dunedin done versus Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust? Um, it hasn't done as well. So it's been trading on a much wider discount to net asset value. And on the day before the announcement, this was 14.1%. That's compared to Standard Life's discount, which was 6.1%. So quite a big difference there. And also in terms of NAV performance, Dunedin hasn't done quite as well as Standard Life. So over three and five years, Dunedin made 43%. And over five years, it made 94%. And that's compared to Standard Life, which made 73% over three years and 113% over five years. So much better performance and a a tighter discount on the Standard Life Companies Trust. So uh, clearly better management at Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust. If this merger goes ahead, because obviously shareholders have to approve it first, who will run the merged entity? Will it be the manager of Dunedin or the manager of Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust? It's actually going to be the manager of Standard Life UK Smaller Companies and that is Harry Nemo, who is very well regarded as a small caps manager. So in some ways, it's a, it's a great move. And basically, he's going to be managing the combined trust using his current approach of finding quality, high growth opportunities. Does Harry have a good record? He really does. Um, so as I mentioned, Stan Life's performance figures are better than Dunedin's. But also, according to Mr. Nemo's personal track record, Um, According to Trustnet, over 10 years, he's made a return of 285%, which is well above um, the 185% made by his peer group. So some very good relative outperformance there. Okay, so can we conclude that a merger will be beneficial to Dunedin Smaller Companies shareholders? The analysts I was speaking to certainly think so. Um, You know, apart from the fact that Dunedin shareholders are going to be um, being managed by a very good fund manager, the trust is also going to be in a trust that has a tighter discount and Standard Life UK Smaller Companies actually has a discount control mechanism, which means that if its discount nav goes beyond 8%, its board buys back more shares. So actually there's a sort of limit to how much, how wide the discount can go. So better um, performing manager, tighter discount, and it's also going to be a larger trust with greater liquidity. So there's a lot to like here. Okay, but what about the people sitting in Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust? Is it is it good that this um, entity is being rolled into them? Um, yes, it, it is because actually um, Standard Life UK Smaller Companies has a tiered management fee and that basically means that if its assets increase, its fees come down. So with the assets being rolled over from Dunedin into this trust, investors in Standard Life UK Smaller Companies are also going to see a reduction in their fees, which is good news for them. Okay. I mean, it all sounds very perfect, but there must be some sort of downside. It's broadly a good move, but there are a few issues. One thing is that shareholders in Dunedin um, were getting a higher yield of 2.2% 
on that trust. But Standard Life UK smaller companies has a lower dividend of 1.3%. So if investors decide to stick with the merger and move into the larger trust, they're going to be getting a lower dividend. The board has said that they will pay a final interim dividend before the merger to make up for the reduction in the dividend that investors were expecting. But that's only for the the next 12 months. After that, investors going forward will get this lower yield. So that's something um, that's not so great if you were wanting to be in this trust for its yield benefits. What can you do about it? Well, basically, you mean you can sell the trust. And the good news about the fact that this merger has been proposed is that actually um, Dunedin's discount never has has really tightened as a result of this. So before the announcement, it was 14.1%, and now it's around 7.3%. So actually, investors can sell the trust, but they can do so at a much tighter discount than they could have done previously. Patrick, do you think Dunedin smaller company shareholders should be pleased at having Nimmo maybe running their money come the autumn? In theory, this is a really good idea for them. Harry Nimmo is, is well known in the industry. He's long established, long respected. He's got a very good track record and he's considered to be certainly one of the better smaller company fund managers. Um, with regard to smaller company investments, there, there is sometimes a concern in terms of the amount of assets that managers run um, and a lot of smaller companies funds struggle when asset sizes get larger. Um, Harry Nimmo is one of those managers who's continued to perform well, even though he's managing more money. So with the um, investment trust, it's about 400 million already, but also he's got an open-ended fund, which is about 1.5 billion, which for a smaller company's fund is, is, is huge. There are downsides to that. There are downsides in terms of the size of companies he's able to get meaningful exposure to. There'll be downsides as well in terms of the flexibility he'll have within the fund as well in terms of buying and selling smaller companies. But as I, as I say, to date, he's managed to run the fund and successfully, even though it, it, it's been a large size. The, the, the proviso I would make, though, for investors in Dunedin, or for, in Standard Life for that matter, is these are not the only two smaller companies, investment trusts or funds out there. There, there. there is a wide market out there. There are lots of good quality managers. And so you could take this opportunity just to review to make sure this is the right place for you and don't make the choice between whether you want to stay with Dunedin or whether you want to move to Standard Life, but make the choice as well of whether you think there's another fund out there or another trust out there that, that, that would be a good choice for you. I have to ask you, seeing um, Harry can get good results of larger funds, um, is that because he looks to mid-caps as well, or how does he do it? Sometimes sometimes he does, yeah. He he, t- he tends to hold smaller companies as they get larger. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure he still has, but not so long ago, he was still holding Hargreaves Lansdowne when it was in the FTSE 100 because he bought it when it was much smaller and, and it continued to grow. And and you have to accept, if you're investing with Harry Nimmo, you're likely to be near the top end of, of, small cap, uh, of the small cap spectrum. If you want to go further down, then you need to look at either smaller, more flexible funds or, or some of the micro cap type funds that, that, that are available. Okay. Now, more generally, what should investors consider if a fund they invest in is going to merge with another one? Yeah, I mean, investment trust mergers are rare, but we we see it a lot more in the open-ended space. Uh, and, and and you could almost ask the same questions as if you're in a fund and the fund manager leaves or key members of the team leave as well. You you need to look and see what the fund has done in the past and what's likely to change going forward. Will there be a change in the process that's being used? Will there be a change in the type of companies that be invested in? Will there be a change in the amount of risk that's being taken? And, and potentially, would a larger fund size cause drawbacks as well? So, so again, this 
this is the ideal opportunity when you should be reviewing. And, and you'll see that most investment companies, when something happens within a fund, will take stock and make a decision in terms of whether they'll continue to buy, whether they'll hold, or whether they'll sell that fund. And individual investors should do should be doing exactly the same. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees if, 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 if this takes place. There are no guarantees what happens when managers leave as well. You, you have to use your best estimate in terms of what you know and, and make a judgment call from there. Okay. But I suppose to summarise, um, what would be some instances of when it would be beneficial that your fund is going to be merged into another one? That may well be the case here. If, if, you're, if you're moving and joining up with, with, with a highly respected, highly regarded manager who has a great track record. And, and so for the Dunedin um, Investment Trust um, holders, there, there's, there's a case it falls into that camp now. Okay. And and what circumstances um, might it be wise to exit a fund um, because it's undergoing a merger? Really, if you're in any doubt, why, why would you want to stay in a fund or a trust where you have doubt when you can move to an alternative where, where that doubt doesn't exist? If you don't know how the fund is going to be run, you don't know what changes are going to be in place, you don't know if it's going to take more risk. If you've got that doubt, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. You don't need You don't need to do that. Okay, thank you, Patrick. Some really helpful things to think about. This week's Portfolio Clinic features a couple who have a lot of assets and hope to pass some of these on to their children in a tax-efficient way. But they haven't managed their affairs in the most efficient way to do this and mistakenly believe that one type of investment they hold won't be subject to inheritance tax. Patrick, you've reviewed this portfolio. So where is this couple going wrong when it comes to inheritance tax? Yeah, I, I think there are three areas where they're going wrong. Number, number one is, is they're not actually doing anything proactive and positive to address, address inheritance tax. And, and there are lots of steps that can be taken there, not just in terms of investing in certain areas, but lots of financial planning steps that can be taken there. Um, number two is they've been moving some money out of wrappers that are effective for inheritance tax planning, and in particular, taking money out of pensions, where it wouldn't typically be subject to inheritance tax, and investing in ISAs, where it would do. Uh, and thirdly, as you've alluded to there, um, they've invested in VCTs on the basis that they think that they're um, inheritance tax friendly vehicles when, when they're not. Uh, I, I think what's likely to be happening is they're getting confused, as many people do, between venture capital trusts, VCTs, and enterprise investment schemes, EISs, which and within EIS, you do, or at least you can, benefit from inheritance tax. Okay, so what exactly is an enterprise investment scheme or EIS for short and why doesn't it incur inheritance tax? Um, I think to start just just to highlight the main difference between a venture capital trust that they've invested into and an enterprise investment scheme uh, with, with a VCT it's typically like an investment trust. It invests into a range of underlying small companies that are not listed on a main stock exchange. An EIS is a riskier version of that because it tends to invest, it doesn't tend to invest, it invests in just one company rather than a range of companies. So, so an EIS is, 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 is higher risk than a VCT. There are similarities between the two. There are some similarities in terms of the tax benefits between them, but there are some also some important differences, and inheritance tax is one of these. Um, with regard to a um, 
EIS, uh, this qualifies for something called business property relief because it's investing in a qualifying business. Um, unlisted companies tend to be, there, there are some exceptions, but tend to be qualifying for inheritance tax purposes. And because they're investing in one particular company that, that benefits from this, that, that is qualifying, it, it then benefits from inheritance tax relief on the basis that they've held the EIS for a minimum of two years. So if you don't want to take on the risk of EIS, what are other ways you can mitigate inheritance tax? There are, there are many, many ways. If you're looking at investments, any investments that mitigate inheritance tax are going to be high risk. There, there, there's no two ways around that. So you need to balance up the tax benefits on one side with the level of risk on the other. And it's great saving 40% inheritance tax. But if actually, if you're losing 50% in terms of your capital value going down, that, that's not a great not a great deal. Sounds like a false economy. <laughs> yeah. so, so in terms of investments, really, you're looking at unquoted or, or, or AIM stocks. You're looking at EISs of we lead, as we've alluded to, and also seed enterprise investment schemes, which are a riskier version, again, which are designed for smaller startup companies. Um, either that, or you're looking at things like agricultural relief, woodland relief, which, which aren't typical for, for most mainstream investors. Starting point for people when they're looking at inheritance tax should, should be the basics. It should be what are the allowable reliefs and exemptions. Now, Everybody is entitled to um, a nil rate band, which is currently £325,000. Um, the residence nil rate band was introduced in April 2017 as well, which it helps people who are passing on a property that they've lived in to one of their direct descendants. Look to use those first. Make sure your will has, is, is, is correct and structured in the right way. Then also look at gifts. If you, if you can afford to give money away, and in the case of this case study, the gentleman was looking to give some money, he was looking to give £80,000 to his children. If they make gifts there, there are allowable exemptions that people can make in terms of gifts. They tend to be quite small. So the annual exemption itself is £3,000. You can make larger gifts in, in, in that respect if you're making regular gifts out of income. But, and if we go back to the case study, well, if you're giving away £80,000 or a larger sum, you can do that still. That's termed um, a potentially exempt transfer, a PET, a PET. If you give that away and it stays out of your state for, oh, sorry, and, and if you live for seven years after you've done that, then it's out of your state for inheritance tax purposes as well. So for most people, the starting point should be exemptions and gifts. There are a whole range of other ways that you, you can limit or, or reduce your inheritance tax liability without having to resort to taking on high-risk investments. Okay, really helpful. Um, now, even if VCTs don't mitigate inheritance tax, could it be worth the readers featured in this week's portfolio clinic hanging on to them? Yeah, very much so. Uh, v- VCTs um, are still very tax-efficient vehicles. Um, to start with, they benefit from 30% income tax relief on, on investments. Um, this acts as a tax reducer as well, so it, 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 it's, it's clear and concise in terms of how that reduces your income tax bill. You need to hold the investment for five years in order to maintain that tax relief. I think in, in the case study, they held them for two, so they need to hold them for at least another three before they do that. But one of the big advantages of VCTs as well, and which is why they can work well for people who have perhaps pension lifetime allowance issues, is the fact that dividends they pay are tax-free. It's not get away from the fact that VCTs are high risk. They're not suitable for anybody, everybody. But if you're looking for income, you're looking to bolster your income or perhaps you're looking to keep money within your pension because it's it, of the inheritance tax benefits, VCTs can, can at least be considered. 
okay. Um, helpful again. That said, VCTs, EIS, and some of the other strategies you mentioned sound fairly complicated. So where can you get good information and advice on these? They, they are complicated and it's easy to get it wrong as, as, as we've seen already. Um, and, and it's also easy to invest in the wrong areas or perhaps take on more risk than you realise. There is lots of information that's available online now. You, you need to scurry around and, and search for it. There, there, there are places where you can buy these things. There are discount brokers who, who will sell VCTs, um, who, which will provide information as well. But there's an important caveat to that. Yes, you can get lots of information, but actually what you won't get is whether the VCT is suitable for you or the EIS is suitable for you. And that, that is a huge factor. So if you looked at these products in isolation, you go, the tax benefits are great. The growth potential is very good. I think I'm going to have one. Actually, you may be taking on far more risk than you realise Yes, they're, they're strong upside, but also that works downwards as well. And, and, and so it's important that you make sure, yes, you've got the right product, but actually it, it is suitable for you as well. And, and, and really, you cannot do that without taking independent financial advice. So you'd say tax is perhaps an area on which it, it is essential to get some professional advice. Inheritance tax planning in particular, yes. Um, if you're looking to use high-risk investments such as this, most, def- most definitely yes as well. As I say, the attractions are great, but only for the right people used in the right way with, in the right proportions. Thank you, Patrick. Some really useful points. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on Asia Funds, Dunedin Smaller Companies Investment Trust merger and tax efficiency in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 